Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I'm going to be talking to Miranda Keating Erickson, who is the Vice President Markets for the Alberta Electricity System Operator, about a really important new report on the future of Alberta's, well, how to get to net zero emissions by 2035 in Alberta. So welcome to the interview, Miranda. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm really excited about this because uh, it's a little bit nerdy and a little bit technical, but the uh, I have interviewed, I don't know how many economists, uh, you know, in Europe and the US and Canada, they all say, you know, economies like Canada, we're going to need two to three times as much electricity by 2050. It has to be clean. It has to be reliable and low cost and abundant. And essentially, electricity is the foundation of the 21st century economy. So how we manage the evolution of our electricity systems is absolutely critical to economic competitiveness and our you know, our, our, with our jobs and our, our prosperity and so on. So this is really important. And what I'd like to do is start off, if you wouldn't mind, with an overview of the study, please. Sure, we can do that. Um, so what we've done, there's, there's many policy conversations that are going on. And as you said, uh, it's viewed that as we look towards uh, moving towards a net zero economy overall, uh, people are looking to the electricity system as a facilitator or enabler of that, that electrification is part of the path to getting the rest of our economy uh, to net zero. And so uh, the, the federal policy discussions in Canada have centered in on, uh, while it's a longer term target to get to a net zero economy by 2050, that they'd like to see our electricity grids in Canada get to net zero by 2035, again, sort of as that key enabler. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of study about how might we be able to do that? Uh, what might it take? Where are the opportunities? Where are the challenges? What are the risks? Um, and so as the organization that's accountable for the reliability of the electricity system in Alberta, um, the Alberta electric system operator decided to do a study uh, that looks out at, at what are some of the ways we could get there. Um, and I, I do want to right off the bat say our study is not intended to be the only potential pathways to net zero. Uh, but what we did was we looked at um, three kind of bookends of what do we think are some potential pathways to net zero that we think are the most realistic to be achievable by 2035. Um, and so one, uh, looks at what I would call more dispatchable generation. So still using natural gas, but with carbon capture and hydrogen and those kinds of things. The other looks at more renewables and storage. And then there's one that's sort of a hybrid that uses a combination of the two um, to look at what the, what the opportunities might be for us here in Alberta and provide some objective analysis and information to those that are making decisions, whether that be policymakers or private industry. Well, let's talk about uh, the first 
uh, scenario, which is called the dispatchable dominant. And so yeah. we're talking about natural gas, carbon capture and storage. Uh, and right now, uh, while coal, coal will be out of the Alberta power grid, well, very shortly, actually. By next year. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the a lot of that has been accomplished by switching over to natural gas. So mm -hmm. if you're when we were living in Calgary, uh, we were a mile away from uh, NMAX's at that time new Shepherd gas plant. And once you've built a plant like that, that's a 30 to 50 uh, year kind of infrastructure facility. So what about all of that, that gas, um, uh, those gas plants, can they be switched over to run on hydrogen? Uh, I've interviewed a couple of experts who've claimed that, that that's the case now. Is that an option? Um, so I'm, I'm going to first off say that technically I'm not an expert as to what they can do with some of those existing plants, but we do know. Um, first off, I think it's important to note that our, our analysis in this report shows that the net in net zero is really important, that we actually don't think it's economically feasible to try to get to actual just zero emissions. Um, because when you do, for example, put carbon capture and storage on an existing power plant and, and retrofit it, it might capture 90% of the emissions. It, it, it likely doesn't capture quite 100%. Um, we do know that retrofitting existing power plants with carbon capture and storage is feasible and has been done. Um, some of the newer uh, gas-fired power plants, um, the turbines are designed to be able to run on hydrogen. Um, and so we do think there are possibilities there. Uh, and we also know that there's uh, a lot of, of energy uh, being directed both academically and in industry and from governments uh, at looking at, at hydrogen and how hydrogen can play a role going forward. And so that's what the scenario does is, is look at what those technologies might be either for new generation or for retrofitting existing natural gas fired generation to co-fire with hydrogen or completely trans transfer onto hydrogen or to use some form of carbon capture and storage um, to be able to continue to operate those plants. Well, let's talk about the next one now, which is first mover advantage. So here we're talking about uh, primarily wind and solar, which are already low cost uh, alternatives. And Alberta has some of the best wind and solar resources in Canada. I think it has the best wind and solar resources in Canada, particularly in the South. Mm -hmm. um, now, I interviewed economist Mark Jackard a couple of weeks ago, and he made the claim, which I thought was rather startling, that in fact, renewables aren't the, the lowest cost form of, of uh, generation and never will be. And I, I, I wanted to ask you, since we're talking about this scenario, what, you, what your take on that is. Um, well, I would never use the phrase never, <laughs> um, because I think there are so many different, different things at play. Uh, what we did find through our analysis is a pathway that assumed that we would go to 100% renewables um, combined with energy storage wasn't feasible. Um, but there, there just is, you know, Alberta is a place with cold winters, long, dark nights, um, very, very variable weather. Uh, and so, you know, I think the, the economics of energy storage are changing quite dramatically, just like the costs of things like solar panels and wind turbines have decreased very dramatically. Uh, and so we see, we, we certainly see the heavy use of renewables as part of the solution going forward. 
Um, but we, and, and uh, industry agreed with us, you know, we did a, a fair bit of, of engagement with all sectors on uh, how we were approaching this report and what assumptions we were making and how we framed up these different scenarios. Uh, and there was broad agreement that trying to do one that is 100% renewables um, really wasn't uh, really wasn't a feasible a feasible pathway. Now, um, I my take on on the, the where the technology is is that we're you know some of the stuff has been around for a long time for decades like you know commercial wind turbines and and the and solar panels but we're really at that point where the technology is becoming competitive and there's a, still a lot of innovation going on and particularly around storage but even still in in solar uh -huh. and uh, and wind and it seems like this is a very disruptive decade that we're going to be in here technology is going to change i mean what what we what 2030 will look like, uh, it will look very different than today. And so I would imagine when you're doing these scenarios, you're kind of taking that, that disruptive innovation into account. We are, and, and we do things like we assume reductions in cost curves. Um, we assume increases in energy efficiency from consumers. We, you know, there, there are a number of things that we do assume in terms of adoption of things and advancements, but there's an awful lot that we can't necessarily predict, right? And so you can run some sensitivities and say, well, what if costs come down even faster? Um, you know, you can, you can do those kinds of things because you're right. I think that we're dealing with, um, you know, the next 10 to 15 years it will be a period of, of incredible change um, on the technology front, both from the producers of electricity, but also the technology front in terms of consumers of electricity. And in Alberta, you know, only 13% of the electricity in Alberta is consumed in people's homes. The vast majority of our electricity in Alberta is consumed by commercial and industrial users. Um, and, and I think their business is also changing. I, I, I guess just to tie a bow around this, it's that the, the it's almost impossible in 2022 to say in 2035, our generation mix is going to be X because it's, it, things are just so volatile and uncertain right now because of all this innovation and disruption. And so the best thing, you, you've, you've done these three scenarios and it could be any mix of those things, depending on how the technologies work and costs come down and other technical breakthroughs that we don't even know about. That's right. Um, and, and in fact, I think, you know, one of the advantages that Alberta has is that we have this competitive marketplace where private industry will make their investments, they'll decide what they're going to build. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, if we leverage those, you know, the, the, the market forces of all of the, those different players competing with each other, um, you know, I, I truly believe that that will get us to a place where we can do this in a more affordable way than by trying to pick today what the right technologies are going to be in 2035 um, and, and push towards those. You know, I think that, uh, that we'll miss the boat if that's what we tried to do. I wanna talk a little bit more about uh, those technologies uh, in, a, in, a, in a later uh, question, but my question for you now uh, is the, the price tag because that, mm -hmm. was, uh, that was headline news when the report came out and the number I saw most frequently was $52 billion. Could you explain that please? Yeah, so I think what's important to note is a transition to net zero, first of all, it doesn't come without a cost. 
um, you know, we're talking about massive, uh, you know, capital stock turnover, you know, you have to, you have to be building new sources of electricity, you have to be making sure that all those sources of, of electricity can get to consumers. Um, our, these, these three um, scenarios that we've done, uh, we, we then compare them again. So the ISO produces once every two years, we produce a 20 year outlook uh, in terms of uh, you know, consumption patterns and, and, and supply of electricity in the, in the province. And we had just released our latest outlook in 2021. And so what we did was we compared the dollars required in terms of, of investment and return on investment and all the rest of it in these scenarios compared to that 2021 outlook as a baseline because it wasn't a net zero outlook. Um, and the difference in cost across the three scenarios for the next 20 years, so not to 2035, but to 2041, so that you could compare apples to apples, um, is an increase of between 44 and $52 billion, depending on the scenario. Um, now, about uh, almost 90% of that comes from the supply side of the equation, so the, the turnover in actual production of electricity, which is all private investment. So when I talk about opportunity, um, you know, that's the potential to be attracting a lot of investment into Alberta uh, as that all happens. But, but as I said, you know, this, um, along with that opportunity comes uh, some of the challenges associated with a transition that happens that quickly. Um, you know, less than 15 years is a very short time frame in a capital intensive industry like electricity. Um, and, and that's not going to come without a cost. And I would caveat that there's some risk to those cost numbers. First, we haven't looked at the distribution side of the equation yet. There's still some more work to do there. And second, as we saw when the oil sands were booming, when you have that much capital construction all happening at the same time because of a boom, uh, you tend to see inflationary pressures on those costs as well. I think we have uh, uh, listeners from all over the world, so we should probably point out, uh, and some Canadians who don't understand the Alberta system, is, is that the uh, uh, the generation side is deregulated. Uh, so anybody who's an approved developer can develop a wind farm, solar farm, whatever. Uh, but the the transmission side is re still regulated. And, and and could you fill us in on what the, the distribution side is? It's a bit complex, and I've never, I don't think I've completely understood that. Sure. Um, so I would say if you look across the whole value chain, there's sort of four sectors. So you've talked about generation, which... Um, I don't love the term deregulated because they're actually still quite heavily regulated, but their pricing is deregulated. Um, and so anybody can build a power plant and be a supplier of electricity as long as they meet all the technical requirements. The transmission wires, which are the high voltage, long distance uh, transmission of electricity from uh, where that generation, the supply of electricity exists to where it's consumed across long distances, um, that is... Uh, continues to be regulated. And so that is planned by the ISO as, uh, as an agency that was established to do that. Um, and uh, when the ISO that goes through a, a, a regulatory process to determine that we need to expand the transmission system, that gets approved by the Alberta Utilities Commission, and then the transmission companies are directed to build those lines. Um, the distribution system is also still regulated. And so those are your local distribution companies. The names people will be most familiar with in Alberta would include Enmax and Epcor, um, Fortis, uh, and then some of the smaller municipalities that do their own distribution. 
um, and they are also regulated. And so their rates are determined by the Alberta Utilities Commission as well. And they have a, a service territory that they distribute in. And then there's the retailers who are who you actually get your bill from at the end of the day. Um, and they're sort of the customer service end of things. And that is also competitive like generation. So the two, the two ends of that value chain are uh, what they refer to as deregulative competitive marketplaces. Um, but the delivery wires in the middle are still regulated. Uh, let's talk about some of the sources of new generation. We've already talked about renewables and storage, but nuclear and geothermal uh, also, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk and has been for a while in Alberta about those. And what role uh, do uh, nuclear small modular reactors in particular, because the provincial government is committed to those, uh, what role do they play in uh, your scenarios? Um, so they're mentioned in the report as, a, as another potential technology and another potential pathway. They don't factor into any of these three scenarios in particular because we felt that um, because a, a nuclear facility has never been permitted in Alberta before, there's sort of some, some gaps in the regulatory regime. Um, and uh, while they show a lot of promise, we haven't yet seen sort of widespread deployment of them on a commercial scale. And so we felt that having them up and running and in operation by 2035 was probably a bit of a stretch. And we think they probably pay, play a bit of a longer term role uh, around uh, electrification and net zero in the province. But uh, we felt that they were less realistic by 2035. Right, uh, economist Jason Dion, who I refer often to often in my, in my interviews talks about uh, safe bet technologies like wind and solar and some storage versus wildcard technologies like geothermal and small modular reactors that show promise we should keep investing in them but you know it's still a bit early to know uh, whether or not they're going to be economic and competitive that's right and and you know because there haven't been hasn't been widespread deployment um, regulatory processes around things like that take time to develop when there isn't when there isn't a, a known path for that, right? So I think there are some gaps there that need to be resolved as well. Now, another issue that we've talked about many times in energy media is the idea of regional electricity markets. Now, we do a lot of reporting on, on the American electricity system. And as you know, there's, yeah, I mean, they're in the process of, well, re-engineering their, their national grid and, and regional grids. Uh, and uh, and trade in elect and electricity markets are a big part of that. And they're flattening yeah. in many regions, they're flattening that old vertically integrated cost of service utility model into these distributed uh, energy resource uh, platforms. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so different than what's happening in Canada. Uh, but there has been talk in Canada of regional markets. And so Western Canada often gets man mentioned. You've got BC and Manitoba, a bookending Alberta and Saskatchewan. And so the, the hydro provinces uh, can, can, in theory, uh, provide storage for intermittent renewals, renewables. What role, if any, did that kind of east-west trade and the use of hydro as storage for renewables, what role did the, they play in the uh, scenarios? Um, so a, a little bit like nuclear, uh, they're mentioned in the report, both uh, greater interties connecting across Western Canada and the idea of large hydro in Alberta itself are both mentioned. 
um, but again, not seen as a realistic pathway by 2035. And, and, you know, I get a lot of questions on the intertize one around that. And I will say that um, there are a couple of challenges that go with uh, an intertize scenario that uh, are not simple engineering to solve, they involve politics. Um, and that can get a little bit tricky. I mean, I think there have been conversations about greater interconnectivity of the electricity grids in Western Canada. Um, I, you know, certainly for the almost 30 years that I've been in the industry and I know for long before that. Um, and I think some of the challenges, uh, you know, first off is that you've got Alberta as this competitive marketplace with a lot of private investment. And then you have crown corporations in the three other Western provinces. Um, and so there's there's some some marketplace challenges that would go with integrating those systems. Um, there, you know, we, we've seen the challenges with getting pipelines built across the company. Building cross-country transmission lines has a lot of the same uh, linear infrastructure challenges that would exist with stakeholders and landowners and all of those kinds of things. Um, and then there's actually the whole North American grid is sort of divided east and west and isn't synchronized across the two. And that divide in Canada is between Alberta and Saskatchewan. And so anything that crosses across Alberta and Saskatchewan would have to be direct current, not, so DC, not AC, um, which you know is doable, uh, you know, isn't a particular engineering challenge, but is a little bit more costly and does um, does bring with it some some different different challenges. Um, and so again, you know, as we were looking at our scenarios in this report. Um, the idea of getting four provinces and the federal government all working together to plan, develop, you know, permit and, and do all the stakeholder engagement and all the landowner engagement and actually get it built and operating by 2035, um, you know, to build a large transmission project in Alberta, um, where it's only one province typically takes us seven or eight years. And so to, to try to do that within 12 years or 13 years, just didn't seem like a real realistic uh, pathway for us to be studying. No, I, you mentioned politics, and I know your uh, organization probably doesn't want to, you know, touch too uh, strongly on on the political challenges here. But I mean, this really has, if I understand this correctly, has to start at the political level. Premiers have to, you know, Premier Jason Kenney has to talk to Premier uh, John Horgan in BC, and they have to say, "Hey, look." let's do some more east-west trade and then let's work this out and that hasn't been happening there hasn't been a lot of political appetite to talk about east-west trade has there correct yeah okay and i think <laughs> I, you know i think the other piece is for all of this uh it, it has to start at the policy level in that it's really important i think no matter what uh uh, scenario or pathway that we're on, um, having policy clarity and getting the regulatory frameworks in place <clears throat> and doing that as quickly as possible, given the time frame we're working with, you know, 12 and 13 years isn't very long. And so I, it's really, really important, um, no matter what the pathways are, that that clarity be afforded so that, so that provinces and, and private investors and everybody can be making decisions um, because where you have have unknowns and policy gaps and and regulatory gaps, then everyone's sort of paralyzed and can't move forward. Is the necessary policy work being done in Alberta to move ahead with the scenarios we talked about? A little greater electric, 
electrification, growth and generation, infrastructure, construction, those sorts of things. Are, are we get are we having the conversations and is the policy work getting started? Uh, there are certainly lots of policy conversations and policy work that is getting started. So uh, I would say at the federal level, they've put out their discussion paper on the clean electricity standard, uh, and they're now engaging both with industry and with the, all the provinces. Um, and that includes talking to us, and that includes talking to the provincial government in Alberta. Um, the Alberta government has started their review of the, of the tier regulation uh, here in Alberta. Um, to look at equivalency. Uh, there's certainly a lot of work going on looking at um, CCUS hubs and, uh, you know, uh, setting up the appropriate regulatory frameworks for carbon capture and storage, uh, particularly the storage end of things. I think that that really needs to get sorted out. There's a fair bit of work going on in terms of uh, hydrogen um, and, and looking at that provincially. So I think there is a lot going on. And there may be more that we that, that we don't know about yet that's happening behind closed doors, and we don't have a, a, a lens into that. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't know that I could say whether there's enough happening, but there is certainly uh, a lot happening. Um, but as I said, you know, it's critical that that work get done so that so that industry can get some clarity and is able to move forward uh, and make their 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 investment decisions. Now, uh, ASO re released a report last year. That was, I thought was very interesting. It was set of, you've been out consulting for a couple of years with stakeholders and industry and customers and, and so on. And one of the points that was made, uh, and I'm wondering if you considered this in this report, is self-generation, commercial uh, and industrial self-generation, because the, the power grid relies upon those big customers to pay you know, a big part of the bill if they self-generate and either don't use the grid or don't use it as much, that presents all sorts of problems. And where, what it's the likelihood that in Alberta, you'll see big industrial customers like paper mills and you know, you know, uh, maybe oil sands plants, whatever it might be, decide that it's cheaper for them to build their own renewables and get off the grid. Is that likely? So we already have a significant amount of self-generation in Alberta. And a lot of it, um, a lot of it is co-generation where you get, you know, really efficient production of electricity being co-produced with heat that's needed, for example, for steam, for industrial processes and those kinds of things. Um, so we actually, uh, as far as, you know, most jurisdictions that I'm familiar with go, we have, we already have more than most. Um, and we have a framework that allows for that to happen, for industry to self-generate. Um, what we have found through the years is that even when they produce their own electricity on site, they don't, they don't go off the grid. Um, the grid is still there as their backup. It provides them with reliability. There's, you know, nobody's power plant runs 100% of the time. It has to be come, come down for maintenance, those kinds of things. Um, and so one of the challenges I think we have is uh, as we move into a, a space where, you know, large industry has always been able to do this. And I think as we look at, you know, things like um, a, a hockey rink being able to put solar panels on the roof or whatever the case may be, um, that idea of the prosumer where you can produce some portion of your own electricity um, yourself, I, you know, I think is an idea that's here to stay. 
Um, and one of the challenges with all of that is how do you enable that so that you get to your most efficient electricity system possible, but at the same time, do it in a way that, that has an eye out for affordability. Um, and, and we have certainly seen in some places where uh, policy didn't contemplate that is you create a risk of having infrastructure that is there to support everyone, but those who can afford to self-generate don't pay for it um, because they find ways around tariffs. Uh, and then the burden of cost of that infrastructure that's there to serve everyone falls to those who can't afford to self-generate. And so it's really important as we, as we look at how this whole electricity system is moving forward and how um, everything from self-generation to more electrification, um, all of those kinds of things that we keep an eye out uh, on the affordability piece um, so that you have an electricity grid that is reliable for everyone and affordable for everyone. Great. And that's part of what I was talking about when I referred to what the Americans are dealing with right now is, is those kind of, you know, prosumers and, and how do you design electricity markets to incorporate them? And, and, and then, and that leads into my, my final question, Miranda, is some of the, some of the really interesting, but nascent technology. So we're talking about virtual power plants. We're talking about local microgrids, maybe, uh, you know, with electric vehicles, vehicle to grid integration, those sorts of things. And there's, and the one thing that has been a real eye-opener for me is how much of that technology is coming down the pipeline. I mean, there's a lot of it. It's, I, I see you when utility uh, uh, executives start talking about we're, our, uh, our system, our, our industry is going to be revolutionized. They, in, exact, utilities don't talk about revolution. They like no, incremental no, they evolution. Yeah. No, yeah, no, exactly. So when an, an utility executive says revolution, you know, our ears should perk up. And so what about all of those technologies? Uh, where are we at with that in Alberta? Uh, I mean, I think there's a place for all of that uh, in terms of how we're transforming our grid. Um, and there's certainly uh, great possibilities for remote communities with things like microgrids and those kinds of things. Um, I think when you look at uh, sort of the more central part of our economy, you know, our big cities, those kinds of things, um, there's also, there's always been economies of scale in trade, right? And so um, I, I think it's how do you find a balance where, where it makes the most sense. Uh, you might have a, a smaller microgrid, but where it makes sense to make sure that, you know, Calgary, Edmonton and Fort McMurray are all connected to each other. Um, I think, you know, you have to do what makes sense there too. And so I don't think it's an either or. I think it's all about how does it all integrate and work together. Well, Miranda, this has been fascinating, and I think we got a little peek into the future of the Alberta power grid uh, during this interview, and uh, I, I would summarize it by saying, boy, change is coming. Mm -hmm. and, it is. And it, yeah, and it sounds like it sounds like the the independent system operator that you work for, the industry and the policymakers are all having these conversations and getting ready for it. We absolutely are. And I think this report is really just the beginning of our work in this space. Um, there's a lot more yet to be done, but hopefully this gives everyone uh, some good information and some insightful analysis that, that can help them as they're exploring all of these things as well. Miranda, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. Not a problem. I appreciate the chance to talk about our work. Mm -hmm.